I thought I would start today with, um, uh, I, I read something somewhere this week that prompted this thought. So my mother, uh, this is the, um, oh, 22nd Mother's Day I've spent without my mom. Um, she's been gone that long. Pat Fowler and I were talking out in the, in the uh, kind of the waiting area out there. Um, Dad used to drive her on this property to show her the building before it was finished. And she made it to June of 99 and then uh, never got to see this place finished, um, uh, even though Dad did. But um, my mom was a school teacher, and um, she taught third grade for 33 years. And she started out in a one-room schoolhouse in Garvin County, Oklahoma. And, um, and so I, I saw something online this week that made me think of her. So I'm going to start today with this. Maybe, maybe some of this will resonate with you. Um, don't you wish that your mother was the president? If my mom was the president right now, let me tell you what I think would happen. Okay? All right? First of all, after the debates of last fall, she would have taken both presidential candidates. She'd have them stand in the corner where she would summarily wash their mouth out with soap, uh, both for some of their language and for some of the lies they told. Uh, she would make sure that all kids had at least a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, whether or not there was enough for her to eat or not. The kids always ate first. Uh, if mom were president, she would have paid for all federal programs from her envelope. She had an envelope in a drawer under the uh, silverware. Anybody have a mom like that? Mom was Dave Ramsey before Dave Ramsey was born. <laughs> and I remember when the money was gone, the money was gone. You ate out of the fridge till dad got paid again or till she got paid again. Can you imagine if a mom ran the federal government budget? There would be none of this gazillion trillion stuff. You, when the money ran out, the money ran out. Uh, what if, uh, I, I think if my mom were president, a lot of times in the last couple of years especially, my mom would have walked into the, house, into the chambers of Congress and turned the lights off. Now let me explain this. Mom would, when she was doing something out of the room, Rhonda, sometimes we would come visit her uh, in her classroom. We'd be coming in from Kentucky. We'd go by there to say hello to her uh, before we moved on. And so she'd step out in the hallway, and there would be this murmur in the class. Sally, you know what I'm talking about? When the teacher's out of the class for a minute, there's a going on. She would walk back in the room, turn the lights off, and say, do you people have a problem? Wouldn't you love to see your mom do that in the houses of Congress? What's wrong with you? you people have a problem. I, I can just hear my mom saying that in today's culture. Well, if mom were president, she would have started work early and stayed late. She would have eaten her lunch standing up, which she did most of those 33 years, taking care of kids. Um, she would have worked through recess. We don't get that either, do we? She worked most of her days through recess. Uh, if mom were president, she would have said to those who were, well, really not sick, as she caught me on several days, I just didn't want to go to school, right? And she would say to me, get up, go to work, 
You'll feel better once you get there. Here's some oatmeal and toast. That's how I started a lot of days that I claimed to be sick. Well, don't you wish your mom was the president? I, I do, and I miss her every day, and happy Mother's Day to you guys. I want you to go with me to 1 Kings 22. Now, this is probably not a section of scripture that you read in your quiet time this morning. I'm, I understand that, but it's really good. I, I had to deal with, a, I'm having to deal with a passage on Tuesday morning that is, uh, is just the most hideous stuff in all the scripture. And I've got I've to come to terms with the fact that the Bible says of itself, all scripture is God breathed and it's profitable. Well, this is one of those. Now we're going to meet, okay, Bill. Before you talk, were you saying that the, uh, Congress is similar to kids? Yeah. Uh, unruly kids is what I was saying. <laughs> it is kind of an insult to kids. That's good, Dr. Reeve. All right. So we're going to go to we're going to go to Second First uh, Kings twenty two. Um, now, so, so my question is: As we start this, have you ever sought out uh, some counsel that? Um, what you really wanted them to do is tell you what you wanted to hear. And um, rather than really telling you the truth, so that you could just kind of press forward with your own agenda. Okay? You ever gone to the doctor and the doctor gave you an opinion and you said, well, I don't like that. I'm going to go to another doctor. Okay? I went to the doctor one time and uh, he kind of looked over me and said, you're fat. And I said, I need a second opinion. He said, you're ugly too. <laughs> um, have you ever gone to a doctor for a second opinion just because you didn't like what the first one said? Right? Okay. That's kind of what's going to happen in today's passage. Now, let me, get you, let me give you a little bit of background. The, kind of one of the main characters is a guy by the name of Ahab. He made his decision in a similar fashion. He surrounded himself with yes people who told him whatever he wanted to hear. Our lesson today is going to focus on the one prophet who would tell him no. His name was Micaiah. Okay, Micaiah. I think I'm saying that right. I looked at all kinds of pronunciation stuff. Micaiah. And I, I, I wrote it phonetically in my notes uh, so I wouldn't get it right. Okay, so everybody was telling the king, go ahead, and Micaiah's going to tell him no, and we're going to meet that. Now, let me give you a little bit of the background on Ahab. Uh, the role of the book of first books of First and Second Kings is often misunderstood by the modern reader. So if you're reading straight through the Bible, as I am right now, uh, they cover much of the same times and events as Second Chronicles. So you often read them as, well, they're just retelling the same story. That's actually not the case. In fact, the original readers of First and Second Kings actually associated them with First and Second Samuel, which came in uh, their Bibles as First, Second, Third, and Fourth um, Kingdoms. Okay, so uh, literally early on, all four of those, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, were kind of called the four books of the kingdoms. Okay, so uh, they were a little bit chronological in order. And um, uh, so you and I think of them as books of history, and I love to read history. Um, but we need to remember that no book of the Bible merely seeks to give us a history lesson. There's always a moral lesson. There's always a uh, something to learn and grow from. Uh, 
So, uh, the Old Testament narratives in First and Second Kings included were passed down with the intention of revealing truth about the relationship between God and his people. And so, um, in, the, in the context of where we've been studying, Jerusalem's destruction, the exile of his people, uh, raised questions about God's sovereignty and love. And so, they started reading this history to say, how did this all come about? Um, uh, so, um, the story is going to be told here, picking up with the conquest of the promised land to Joshua and ending with the exile in 2 Kings. So, if you begin with Joshua and, Joshua and read through 2 Kings, you read uh, that part of history. Um, and so, this chapter we're going to read opens with, uh, by describing a conversation between two kings... Um, Ahab, who was the king of northern of the northern kingdom, which was Israel, we're going to call Israel, and Jehoshaphat, who was the king of the two tribes in the south that we're going to call Judah, um, they're getting ready to launch a joint military initiative. And before doing so, Ahab decides to consult his prophets to learn what God would, uh, whether or not God would give them victory. And um, uh, so uh, that was kind of a customary thing. But he sought divine guidance from 400 people who did not know God. They were pagans. Every one of the 400 prophets that he surrounded him with were pagan like he was. By the way, what else do you know about Ahab? He was married to a Jezebel. Yeah, he was married to Jezebel, to the original Jezebel, okay? So they were uh, Baal worshipers, um, and uh, so he consults all these false prophets about whether or not to go to battle, and it's interesting that he thinks they can discern God's will while having no direct access to him at all because they worshiped another false deity. So their counsel was united. God would grant victory in the expected battle. They gave him a favorable report. But Jehoshaphat was unimpressed by all this verdict. His reign was characterized, Jehoshaphat's reign was characterized by religious reform, by the suppression of idolatry. He was generally a good king. And um, um, he found himself in a compromised position here because he had entered into a political alliance with a spiritually lapsed kingdom and king. So Jehoshaphat asked Ahab if he didn't have a prophet of the true God who could be consulted. And Micaiah comes on the scene as that prophet. Steve Blair, I've set you up, I think. If you could start at verse 15 and read uh, just 15 and 16 for right now from 1 Kings 22. When he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Attack and be victorious, he answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The king said to him, How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? What do real prophets do? We've been studying this through this series. What do real prophets do? They listen to God. And they report that to God's people. They're kind of a go-between. They listen to God, and then they report that to God's people. Whatever God says to do, here's what we're going to do. Okay? So, since there has been nobody on the scene who really fits that, 
King Jehoshaphat says, let's find somebody who actually knows God to tell us what to do. And they land on Micaiah, this uh, prophet. Now, um, uh, Ahab reluctantly calls him because he literally hates Micaiah. In chapter 20, um, if you read chapter 20, which we'll just kind of parenthetically refer to today, uh, Micaiah is not identified there, but he's had a run-in with Ahab before or two. And the uh, Jewish historian Josephus identifies the prophet in chapter 20 as Micaiah. So he's met Ahab before. Ahab doesn't like him. Um, he hated him and his prophecies. Look at 2043, okay? So the king of Israel went to the house sullen and vexed and came to Samaria. So he goes back home uh, after one incident when Micaiah gave him a non-favorable uh, prophecy. He says, I don't like this. And so he storms out sullen and goes home. That's King Ahab. By the way, how would you like to do that and know you got to go home to Jezebel? I think I'd find somewhere else to go on the way. But okay, he went home. But that's Micaiah that probably did that. So Mike, uh, Micaiah here uh, surprises the king when he asks him what to do. Now look at, look, we're, we're back in verse 22. Read verse 13 and 14. Then the messenger who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him saying, Behold now, the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. What, what are they saying for Micaiah to do? Line up. 400 guys have said go. We need you to line up. Look at verse 14. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I shall speak. That's a prophet. That's a real prophet. Okay, so um, Micaiah surprises, though, the king here. What surprised him? It's interesting, he does line up with them, but what I want you to catch here, there's some sarcasm involved in this, I think, okay? I think the king summons Micaiah, he goes to the throne room, and he says, okay, everybody else is telling us to attack. What do you say the Lord has to say? And Micaiah says, knock yourself out. I, I, I literally think it was in that context. Ah, go ahead, knock yourself out. What was Micaiah's agenda? He knew Ahab was going to be done away with, and he's okay with that. All right? Now, so he says kind of sarcastically, go ahead, and Micaiah surprised the king by telling him that. Now, in verse 16, what you and I need to recognize here is that we don't think that Ahab was really interested in God's will. <laughs> He just wanted a favorable answer. Micaiah had always told him the truth. In fact, um, he accuses him here in verse 16. Then the king said to him, How many times the Messiah adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? He, he likes what he has to say, but nonetheless, he fears that Micaiah is lying to him. And he's, you could argue the prophet is lying to him, but he's basically just telling him what he wants to hear. He wasn't really interested in the truth. The king wasn't. 
Ahab just wanted his way. Now, by the way, you can read chapter 21, the previous chapter. You might want to scan it. In chapter 21, a guy by the name of Naboth had a beautiful vineyard that he had taken really, really good care of. The king saw it, just wanted it. When you're a king, you want what you want. And I want that over there. Naboth wouldn't give it to him nor sell it to him, even though he was a sovereign king in Israel. And so he goes home and reports it to guess who? Jezebel. And Jezebel arranges to have Naboth murdered. Is Ahab interested in God's will? No, he's interested in his will. I want what I want. Is it going to be when I seek the wisdom of God, is it going to be God's will that I seek or is it going to be my way? And I just want God to kind of rubber stamp it. I want God to kind of confirm it. Uh, if, if this doctor doesn't tell me what I want to hear, I'm just going to go to another one who will tell me what I want to hear. In fact, uh, it's a really good setup. If I have a really good friend who's a doctor who I can just go to and say, write me a prescription for this because this is what I want. Meanwhile, it may not be the best medical advice. Ahab really wasn't interested in God's will. He was interested in his own way. Now, uh, let, let's go on and read a little bit further. Steve, before you take off to go do your duty, you mind to read down through from 17 down through verse 23? And Micaiah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, These people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good about me, but only bad? Micaiah continued, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the hosts of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord, and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked. I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. Interesting, there's... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead and finish. Check, make sure I had to go on. Uh, yep. So now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. You know what this reminds me of? In fact, um, um, it's somewhere down here. I put kind of a reference to it. Kind of reminds me of um, you know Marty's series on the book of Job. And if you remember reading the first couple of chapters of the book of Job, there is a throne room scene. Okay, where um, angels good messengers of God and uh, the, the messengers of Satan are kind of in the, in the same room, uh, literally in the presence of God, which I find kind of an, an interesting and rather hideous thought, but they're there and, and, and uh, they're kind of negotiating with God. I kind of see that similar scene here. And so let's unpack it just a little bit. The prophet recognized 
he says to the king in verse 17, he recognizes that without good leadership, the army is just going to scatter. Do you recognize uh, the words that he uses here? They'll be like sheep without a shepherd. Has anybody else ever said that? Jesus did in Matthew 9. Remember, he looked out and said, and he, they're like sheep without a shepherd. What happens when sheep are without a shepherd? What sheep need is a shepherd that is strong, but also loving. Strong and loving. And, and I think of leaders that we need today, both spiritual leaders and really political leaders, that need to be strong, yes, but they also need to be loving. And so Micaiah says here, um, when you do this, uh, the army uh, is going to just scatter. Ahab was neither strong nor loving. Jehoshaphat was a little bit better. But Micaiah says, go ahead, but here's what's going to happen. Um, here's what's going to happen. So, um, um, if they attack, in attack, the army is going to scatter. Look, just turn over. In my Bible, i got to turn over a page, but look at verse 36. This is kind of the aftermath of some of this of what happened. Then a cry, verse 36, then a cry passed throughout the army close to sunset saying, every man to his city and every man to his country. They all took off in the heat of battle. When the leader was gone. Interesting. We can make all, all kinds of... Uh, Modern parallels to that, can't we? All right. So in verse 18, Ahab kind of dismisses the prophet's warning. Here's the question. What did Jehoshaphat do? John, can I get you to go a book to the right, 2 Kings 8. I'm going to have you read verse 16, 17, and 18. There's some context we'll need there, Okay. What did King Jehoshaphat do? What are his recorded words in this moment? Crickets. He says nothing. Are you catching that? Ahab is going to go the exact wrong way. Micaiah knows it. It makes me wonder if in that throne room scene, if he looks at King Jehoshaphat and says, dude, aren't you going to say anything? And he does it all through this. He just kind of allows it to happen. Uh, by the way, little context. Uh, Ahab's kingdom is bigger, stronger, more mighty militarily. Jehoshaphat knows he needs this alliance to make it work against the Arameans. So he just doesn't say anything. I, I find that really intriguing here. He was a good and godly king, mostly, Ahab dismisses the prophet's warning. Jehoshaphat could have said, you know, we ought to listen to this. Instead, nothing. Now, I began to wonder why, and there may be a reason why. John, um, over in 2 Kings, there's some family connection here that we ought to read about. Uh, 8, 16 through 18. In the fifth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat was king of Judah. Joram, son of Jehoshaphat, began his reign as king of Judah. He was 32 years old, and when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. 
He walked in the ways of kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done, for he married a daughter of Ahab. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Did you catch that? Okay. Jehoshaphat's son, and this is an alliance, it's an unhealthy, not good alliance. Jehoshaphat's son marries who? Little Jezebel. <laughs> Jezebel Jr. I know you don't say that for girls, but okay. Interesting here. <laughs> Among all the good things that King Jehoshaphat did, he kind of allowed this thing to happen. He may have encouraged this thing to happen. So it makes me wonder, back in 1 Kings 22, if one of the reasons he didn't say anything is because, you know, I want it to go well with my kids. So he just doesn't say anything. Now, verse 19 is really hard for me. Uh, Micaiah says, I saw a multitude. Uh, and he uses in verse 19, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. What do we usually think of when we think of the host of heaven? Angels. An angel army. Okay? Uh, I put the reference to Luke 2. You remember at um, the birth of Jesus out on the Bethlehem hillside, the uh, shepherds were abiding in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And suddenly, you remember that whole story? A multitude of the heavenly host. Same language here. Okay? But the way this kind of comes down is really funny. There are other places. I put some other references. I read them all. We won't go there right now. But there's some other references in the Old Testament that will call the heavenly host will be a group of godettes, okay, so non-gods, uh, and their minions, even their prophets, like the 400 false prophets here. So it's interesting. Some places the heavenly host is talked about appropriately as being God's heavenly army of angels. And other places, there's small h, but heavenly host sometimes may be talking about all this I'm going to use a, a, a mythology term. All this pantheon of gods, little, little g gods, godettes, I sometimes call them, because they're really not. So however you interpret this, there's kind of this throne room experience that happens in, uh, in verse 19. And uh, the multitude... Uh, is consulted here. They may be angels. They may be gods that are worshipped by pagan nations, just kind of referenced here. Um, um, and um, um, I put a reference to a verse here. Well, anyway. Um, uh, so um, they begin to talk about how are we going to thwart Ahab? What's the idea? Giving bad advice. Okay? Giving bad advice. Now, this is interesting. I can't imagine an angel giving bad advice, right? So is it somebody else that gives uh, Ahab's prophets bad advice? I don't know, but I, here, here's what I do know. I want, you to be, I want to be really clear about one thing that I can tell you from verse 19. Who is on the throne? The Lord God Almighty is on the throne. He's in charge of this deal. Okay? 
He is going to make sure that his will is taken care of one way or another, even if it requires giving the king bad advice. So there is uh, somebody, either God's messengers are whispering in his ear or who? We don't know. Who are whispering in the ears of the 400 false prophets that don't even know God. They worship Baal and says to them, tell him it's all okay. Tell him it's going to go really, really well. So they're needing to do that. And in verse 20, a volunteer steps forward. We don't know who the volunteer is. Um, uh, actually, in verse 21, uh, a volunteer is going to step forward. Now, in verse 20, what's implied there is Ahab's impending death. Uh, look at verse 17. Uh, so he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountain like sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, they have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. They have no master. That's the implication of that from Micaiah's words are the leader is going away. He's going to be killed. Brad? Can I ask you a question? Sure. Remember about one of your quotes here from Jeremiah 19.13? Mm -hmm. How would the hosts of heaven responded to people who not only were burning incense to the hosts of heaven, but also pouring out drink offerings to other gods. Okay, so the reference there, Brad, that reason I put that reference in there is because that's another place where it's talking about this pantheon of gods. It refers to them as the host of heaven. That's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but that's, that's how it's referred to, at least in that passage and in a couple others. Well, you and I think of the host of heaven. We think of the heavenly host like in Luke 2. So it's interesting, right, because they don't exist, but it's kind of referred to here. Um, so who knows who's, who they're, uh, who's in this throne room experience? A bunch of angels? Yes. A bunch of demons? Maybe. Okay. All right. Now, look at verse 21. A volunteer from that group, whatever that group is, steps forward the who is not identified, what the volunteer is. It's not as important as the how. A volunteer steps forward and says, I'll go to him and tell him to tell the king, go ahead. Okay? It's kind of, this is great drama. You know, if the Bible weren't true, it's a great drama, right? Well, this is true. So, I began to think about when, when I read verse 22, this doesn't happen. But I began to think about what would have happened if Ahab had actually listened to Micaiah. What do you think? Here's the scenario in my head. If Ahab had listened to the true prophet in the room after he says what he says in verse 17, then I think... If Ahab were thinking clearly, or if he were listening to God in the voice of the Holy Spirit, I, th I think he would have said, you know, this is not going to go well. In fact, it sounds like to me it's not going to go well for me at all. And I think he would have looked at, at you would think, he would have looked at Jehoshaphat and said, what do you think, pal? And Jehoshaphat would have said, well, as long as you're asking me, I want to tell you, I think we need to stand down. We're going to get run over. What, what I think you and I need to understand here is that there is some mercy active here. Ahab didn't have to do what the prophet said he was going to do. This was predictive, not prescriptive. 
catch that? All right. Uh, I think back to April 19th, 1995. And I have a lot of people saying, Pete and I were talking about this on the way to church, not about that in particular. But there are a lot of people that will say, well, I guess God meant that to happen. Uh Uh-uh. Uh-uh. No. God doesn't do things that way. God showed up at 9.03, but God didn't cause what happened at 9.02. And I believe here in our story, God is saying to the players who could have unraveled all this, he's saying to them, to Ahab, I believe God is even saying to Ahab, through the prophet Micah, whom Ahab hates, I think he's saying, you know what? If you'll stand down, you'll save your life and the life of a lot of other people. But Ahab had what, and look this up, I think you'll like reading about it. Ahab, what some might call confirmation bias. You ever heard that term? It means, it means that I only consider what I already believe. Okay, I'm just going to be honest with you. I've been guilty of this in the last 14 months because I dial up certain news channels because I know they're going to say what I want them to say. I rarely look at the other news channel that I know is not going to say what I want them to say. Okay, I'm I'm going to be honest. Somebody's grinning at me back there. I'm going to be honest with you. There are occasions where I will pull up another news source online just to see what they're saying. But my mind's already made up. I have confirmation bias. Ahab had confirmation bias. He was looking for somebody to agree with him. And he found 400 people to do that. And one who said, no, you better not. Okay? Now. Can I say just one thing? Sure. It was prophesied earlier by Elijah that when Jezebel had... um, when Jezebel had Naboth over the vineyard when she when he she had him killed because Ahab wanted to have his way. And he didn't have the courage to do anything. She was he no. she had him in fact, so he could just, you know, do whatever she say to do. Anyway, what I'm saying is that Elijah told um, Ahab, God's gonna get you. In fact, he told him how it was going to happen, didn't he, he, Nadine? In fact, he said, and your wife is going to be killed in this way. Now, I'm going to get to this in a minute because it's going to be interesting to see what Elijah had said about Ahab actually comes true in this chapter. But you're absolutely right. Now, but God's message here was actually kind of merciful. What if Ahab listened? He could have listened. God was giving, I believe, Ahab a choice to repent But he was going to do anything but. Did the king repent? Let's look down at verse 26. Uh, John, let me let you read 26, 27, and 28, and we'll close out. The king of Israel then ordered, take Micaiah and send him back to Ammon, ruler of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, this is what the king says. Put this fellow in prison and give him nothing but bread and water until I return safely. Micaiah declared, if you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. Then he added, mark my words, all you people. Okay. Does the king repent anything but? Anything but it. He calls on local and national authorities to grab Micaiah, lock him up. He's tired of hearing it. 
All right. How did the kings, how did things go for Micaiah? He was here doing this thing that we've heard a lot about in the last several months. He was, have you heard the term speaking the truth to power? He was doing that here. Does that always go well for the prophet? Often doesn't, most of the time doesn't. I think as I was doing prep this week, I thought about Martin Luther King who often spoke truth to power and often ate bread and water in jail. I think of Nelson Mandela, of whom kind of the same thing was true. He spoke truth to power, and it got him put in prison. We don't know what happened with Micaiah's life. We don't have, it's interesting, the Bible is silent on what happened to him, but we know that at least on the short term, he's in jail, eating bread and water for the, at least the near future, if not for the rest of his life, because he spoke truth to power. But aren't you glad he did? What was Ahab's fate? Well, uh, you can read about it in, uh, first, in 1 Kings 22, beginning with verse 29. But I'm going to go to verse 37. Um, Nadine, I think you're going to like this. This is what Elijah predicted. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed his chariot. This is gross. This is, uh, you don't want to go right to brunch after reading this, Okay. They washed his chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood. By the way, why is that? Because Elijah said it would. And a similar fate happened to Jezebel later on. So, what was Ahab's fate? His death vindicated Micaiah and Micaiah's God. It vindicated Micaiah, even though he was in jail for who knows how long, maybe the rest of his life. And it vindicated Micaiah's God. God. Now, here's how I want us to close this out. What is the kind of current time you're in? What's the greatest challenge you're facing right now? What I'm going to ask you to do is to listen. To listen. Uh, when the preacher speaks, when the teacher teaches, listen. When you read the scriptures, and if you're not, please start. Listen. Put one faith-filled foot in front of the other, one step at a time, one challenge at a time. Don't, I'm having a, a, a sense at this point in my life, I'm looking too far ahead. I need to handle what I got to handle today and this week, and I'm worried about what's coming in six months. So I'm going to put one faith-filled foot in front of the other, and I'm going to handle today's stuff with guidance from here. I'm going to listen here. I'm going to listen here. And then I'm going to obey. I'm going to listen. I'm going to really listen. By the way, when you really are up against it, a glimmer of hope or truth from here is like ice water on a hot day. It's like, okay, there it is. There it is. Thank you, God. Listen, really listen. And then when you hear, obey. We're going to meet another kind of unlikely uh, prophet next week. Uh, you may want to read the five chapters or so in the book of Jonah. We're going to kind of zero in on Jonah 3. He is such a unique story 
Because he speaks truth, God's truth, but he does it reluctantly. And we're going to talk about how he spoke truth reluctantly to his enemies and how that turned out. Okay? Listen, really listen. Then when you hear, obey. Happy Mother's Day, gang. I hope you have a great Sunday. I'll see you next week in Jonah 3.